Amen. Y'all can have a seat. Man, after that, I'm just going to pray and we're going to go, right? Man, so good to be here together. I know some of y'all just got your hopes up. Sorry, I'm not really going to do that. Um, but it's good to see you this morning. Uh, my name is Nathan. I'm one of the teachers here at the church, and I'm just p- pleased and honored to open God's Word together with you today. As Clara just read, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 5. Um, if you've been here very long, you know that's not a shock because we're going through Matthew 5 uh, and the Beatitudes. And basically, I just want to start out by saying, man, what a great week it has been, a great week of prayer and fasting. Uh, our church has experienced really since last Sunday, we, we started a week of prayer and fasting. Uh, we met and worshiped and prayed each night over the last week until Thursday night, that is, and just really experienced the Lord. I don't know if you're, anybody, if you're like me at all, like, it was a tough week. It was a tough week. I, I don't know. Uh, my wife thinks she thought it was, well, it's because prayer and fasting, like there, there's going to be a little bit of ramped up, uh, maybe uh, attack. I don't know what it was, but I, I will just say like, I, I experienced a lot of sadness this week, just in my heart, um, a lot of brokenness, a lot of frustration just with life in general. And it just seemed like things just kind of ramped up this week. And I'm not just blaming it all on the enemy. Some of it for sure. Others was just because I'm Nathan and I've got problems too, just like everybody else. But the reality is just that it was, it was a tough week. And so I, I come in this morning just to see that and just praising God that I'm not left in this battle on my own, right? Like we have one another in the battle. We have the spirit, we have prayer, we have the word, and we are part of a kingdom that has come to earth in Jesus Christ. He brought the kingdom of heaven to earth. And, and so there's a lot of great hope in that every day. But really today, I just, after this week, it just, it's just a refreshing to my soul that we are part of this kingdom. And we're in a series called the counter kingdom. And we're looking at the kingdom of heaven that has come to earth that Jesus inaugurated. And we've been in it for a while. We're, we're kind of sourcing this in the Beatitudes. And we're calling it the counter kingdom, not, as I've said multiple times, not because the Holy, not because the Trinity basically in heaven saw what the enemy was up to and gotten like some holy huddle and called a timeout and like, what are we gonna do about this? Rather, this has been from the beginning of time, before the beginning of time, even the Bible says that Jesus agreed to come and to initiate his kingdom, to be the lamb that was slain for our sins and to bring the kingdom of heaven to earth. So it's not a counter kingdom and it's God's counter move, but rather it's counterintuitive to the way we think. It's counterintuitive to the way we operate. And as I said, as I said, the source for this series has been the Beatitudes, which is a statement of blessings that Jesus gives as a kind of a preamble to the Sermon on the Mount. And you know the Sermon on the Mount. Sermon on the Mount is where Jesus raises the bar of what it means to live in his kingdom. It's, it's where we find out that adultery is not just something you do physically, but it's lusting in your heart. It's murder is not just something you do physically, but it's hatred in your heart. And before he drops the deets on what life in the kingdom is like, that's details in case you didn't know. I'm picking up slang. It's probably way past now. Um, but before he drops the details of what life in the kingdom is like, he begins with blessing. Blessing in the kingdom, grace before law, blessing and joy before commands. And as we've said throughout the series, these blessings are in unexpected ways. They're unexpected blessings for unexpecting people. And today we start with beatitude number five. And I think it's especially true with today's beatitude that it's quite unexpected. 
Jesus is going to bless people today who show mercy, who show mercy. And it, it seems like there's a little bit of a, a shift here, right? Because to some degree, it's been rather, I don't know, like logical, the progression has been. The poor in spirit, we've said the first week, are blessed. Why? Because they realize they have nothing to offer God. Like they're spiritually impoverished, and yet they come to him and offer them their life, and he takes their life and says, that's all I need. And he uses their life. He says that theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It belongs to those who are poor in spirit. And then the poor in spirit, they see the brokenness in their own hearts. They see the, the brokenness in their world and they mourn it. They mourn just deeply about how broken they really are and how broken we have made God's beautiful world. And as they mourn, Jesus says they're comforted with hope, with grace, And this in turn makes us a meek people, a a gentle people, not necessarily a a weak people, but a a meek people, a people who reserve their strength and use it for blessing in the world. And with that said, all of this makes us hungry, makes us thirsty to see righteousness in our world, to see a personal holiness in our lives, to see a church that's shaped by just a a beautiful justice and righteousness and holiness, a a city on a hill, a salt of the earth, a light of the world. And that's what we see. And this all lines up pretty well with mercy, except we live, except we live in one of the most, I would say, merciless societies in recent memory. We root for failure of others often. Now, I do that in sports a lot, but we do it in life in general. We root for failure and we struggle to celebrate the success of other people. Social media is rife with mercilessness from body shaming to belief shaming to just overall criticism of every kind you can find. Cyberbullying is something that our kids have to deal with. We dealt with bullying for sure, but not cyberbullying. Would, we wouldn't even know what cyberbullying was when I was a kid. And you see ramped up pressures in our society for kids and for us personally at any age to excel, to be amazing, <clears throat> to be great, and there's little compassion for failure and defeat. We live in a merciless culture for sure. And as Christians, we can say like we love the idea of mercy, but our mercy has limits. If you grew up in the 80s like me, or if you have Netflix now and you have a specific penchant for a little bit of bad acting and nostalgia, that's Cobra Kai, you remember Karate Kid and Sensei John Kreese and the motto of Cobra Kai, mercy is for the We, oh, someone's fired up. (laughs) Come preach, I got my notes. Mercy's for the weak, but not just mercy's for the weak. What does he say? Your enemy deserves no mercy. Now we hear that and we're like, that's terrible. Because back then, Johnny Lawrence wasn't like an out-of-touch dad who's just trying to restore relationships. He was a punk bully who was terrorizing the new kid Daniel LaRusso, and the reality was like, we had mercy on Daniel LaRusso and Miyagi. But tell me about now, how many of you really believe to have mercy on your enemy is a good thing? 
Like we can judge John Kreese, but do we really believe he's, in, he's wrong? Like most of us would be Cobra Kai if we were honest. Mercy's for the weak. My enemy deserves no mercy. I mean, come on, there's a reason we love the best Christmas movie ever, Die Hard. There's a reason, I'm just kidding, I actually like Christmas Story the best. We love Rocky IV because we hate Ivan Drago, right? If he dies, he dies. We're like, we want you to die. Come on, Rocky, let's go, right? We, don't tell me you didn't crack a little bit of a smile and take him when Liam Neeson is like, I got a special set of skills. And he's about to take out the captors of his daughter. And who wasn't satisfied when Mel Gibson gets his revenge in The Patriot? Come on. That's right. I mean, it was gory, but it was awesome. And yet Jesus says, blessed are the merciful. For they will receive mercy. To many of us, this probably feels a little bit understandable. I mean, if we hunger and thirst for righteousness, then we're for a little bit of mercy in the world, especially for injustice. If we're meek, we're probably merciful. But we all know that deep down, we struggle to maintain consistency in showing mercy to others, regardless of the situation. And add to that the complication that what if Jesus has more in mind than just looking after the broken? What if his call is more all-encompassing than that? How on earth could be being merciful in all circumstances be a blessing? And how can, how can he actually, as the Beatitudes imply, how is he really actually working that into us? And this is going to take some work. The counter kingdom is a kingdom of righteousness and justice, but it's also a kingdom of mercy. So let's consider that by talking about four things, the blessing of mercy, the dilemma created by mercy, the merciful heart, and the man of mercy. The blessing of mercy, the dilemma created by mercy, the merciful heart, and the man of mercy. And so to begin, let's just start by defining, as I've tried to do most every week, let's define the terms. What is mercy? Well, according to Merriam-Webster's dictionary, mercy is defined really in two ways. One is compassion or forbearance, that's like long-suffering patience, shown especially to an offender. Second, compassionate treatment of those in distress. Now, we did an entire series back in July in the book of Jonah, and we called it Mercy Beneath the Waves. So we've talked about mercy for a while here over the last few months, and here's how we defined mercy in Jonah. It is us not getting what we deserve. Not getting what we deserve. But Jesus doesn't say blessed is mercy, he says, blessed are the merciful. So what does it mean then to be, with those definitions, what does it mean to be merciful? Well, let's consider the original context. First century Israel, who would be those in distress, in need of compassion? Who would be the offenders within this, the culture and the society that might be, need to be shown forbearance and compassion? Well, you have social outcasts in that day. 
And the Bible often refers to them as sinners. It's not like what we do. We're like, we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Everyone's a sinner. Sinners were social outcasts. They were people who were not invited to dinner, typically. They were people who maybe lived in habitual sin, who are marked by a past of brokenness and sin. And so you see social outcasts are definitely in view here. The other thing you would see is, is the broken in general. Like God has always cared about the poor, the foreigner, the orphan, the widow. Some of that's broken by just the world. Some of that might be broken by their own choices. But the reality is they're all broken and God tends to really care about the broken but also who might have needed mercy in that day were offenders. You had Roman occupants in Israel and they were not typically very meek and mild. They were off, off, often like tyrants. You had tax collectors who had basically bought the right to exhort taxes, extort taxes out of their fellow citizens, their fellow Jews. They were turncoats. They were just not the type of people that the Jews really liked because they were brothers and sisters in the, in, <clears throat> as far as the race goes, but they had turned their back on them and, and chosen power of Rome. And even religious leaders were offending people in that day, calling them to a standard that no one could hit. And here's the deal. Like the lawyer in Luke 18, I think when we hear God's call for mercy, we come to this blessing of the merciful and wonder how little we can get away with. How little mercy do I have to show to be considered merciful? But Jesus doesn't specify to whom the people in his kingdom are to be merciful. Instead, he just simply puts forth the expectation in his counter kingdom that merciful people are there and they're blessed. Therefore, Dr. Derwin Gray, who's a pastor in South Carolina, takes a broad look at this idea when he defines what being a merciful person is. Here's how he defines it. Being a merciful person means loving God by loving people you're not supposed to love. Being a merciful person means loving God by loving people you're not supposed to love. So what does that look like? Not in the first century, but what does that look like now? To love the people that the kingdom of this world may say, mm, shouldn't be loving them. Well, basically, it's very similar to the first century. We need to show compassion to the social outcast. We need to show compassion to the broken. We need to show compassion to our enemies. And we need to show compassion to our neighbors. Like James's exhortation in two, chapter 2, verse 13, we are to offer mercy instead of judgment because, as he says, mercy triumphs over judgment. Could this aspect of Jesus' counter-kingdom be any more countercultural? Like, think about someone you might consider your enemy right now, someone who's hurt you, someone who has maybe just, just caused a lot of pain or angst in your life. Which of these resonates more with you when you think of that person? So, hello from the other side. I must have called a thousand times to tell you I'm sorry for everything that I've done, but when I call, you never seem to be home. That's Adele. Hello. I can't even, I shouldn't even try it. It's me. All right. Does that resonate with you? You think about your enemy? Or how about 
I dug my keys into the side, this pretty little souped up four-wheel drive, carved my name in his leather seats. Let's hope that name isn't a long name. Take a Louisville slugger to both headlights, slashed four holes and all four tires. Maybe next time he'll think before he cheats. That's Carrie Underwood. Y'all know that. And apart from my mind going like, that's a big insurance claim because that's what I do. <laughs> that's an amazing, an amazing chorus. I mean, we feel it, right? We, we all know the call for revenge just strikes a chord in us. And Adele's apologetic call, hoping for forgiveness and a second chance, that's great and all. But you know what? I'll take revenge in a Louisville slugger for 200, Alex. That's what I want. What about you? When you consider those that have hurt you, what is your natural response? What do you resonate with there? When you consider the broken, do you say things like they had this coming, living life like that? We all have problems. Just suck it up. Or when you think about the poor, do you think they just need to quit being lazy? When you consider the people you know who are far from God and would never darken the door of this church, do you think about how you can meet them on their terms? Do you desire to show them mercy? Would you welcome them here if they did darken our door? Would you sit by them? Think about a brother or sister in this room who's offended you or who used to sit in this room and has offended you. Do you hold it over their head? Do you assume the worst about them? To be completely vulnerable and honest, I used to feel that way about our previous pastor. And I had to approach him. I couldn't worship anymore. I couldn't sing. I was wrecked. And in 2020, I had to call him and say, I need to have a meeting with you. I need to confess some things to you some hurt that I have and the way I feel, and it's not right. You're not just my pastor, you're my friend, and this is not healthy for me, and it's not good for you. You see, that happens, and Jesus says, blessed are the merciful, blessed are the compassionate, blessed are you when you offer mercy to your offender, Blessed are you when you offer mercy to the broken and the marginalized. Blessed are you when you offer mercy instead of judgment to a social outcast. And we know that. If we think about it, it's not that hard. Blessing to offer mercy? Well, blessing means joy. It means happiness. It means fulfillment. Which has led to more peace in your life? Holding on to bitterness are offering mercy. Where do you find more peace? Which has robbed you of fulfillment? Showing mercy or getting revenge? Have you ever had that moment in a fight with a spouse, with a child, with a coworker, with a sibling, with a boyfriend, maybe now ex-boyfriend or girlfriend, and you thought, I should have said that. Oh, that would have been really good. It really, really zung up. Some of us are witty enough to think about it in the moment. 
that's not a blessing, I'm just going to tell you. Because <laughs> unless the spirit is strong in the moment, it comes out and it's like, nope, nah, can't bring that one back in. We know that like when we feel that and we say it in a moment, it feels good for a second. And then it's like, well, that wasn't a blessing. And it wasn't just because it wasn't a blessing to them. It wasn't a blessing to you to not offer mercy. Blessing comes from being merciful, but it also comes from receiving mercy. Following up on that story, when I met with him, he offered me mercy. Would you forgive me? I have wronged you in my heart. I'll forgive you. Man, that feels good to receive mercy. You ever had a moment where you felt like you needed mercy for hurting your spouse or your child or a parent, for hurting a friend, maybe at work, something you said to a coworker, something you did that you shouldn't have and you needed mercy from your boss? Maybe at school from a teacher or a coach, maybe on a team, if you play on a team and it was your fault that you lost the game, you missed the shot, you got the penalty. Ever been down and out in life? I've been down and out in life. My junior year, and, it, and I always bring this up just because I feel like it helps people understand my, my past and where I come from, not that I don't have struggles since junior year, but my junior year of college, I went home at Thanksgiving to let my parents know I was going to be a dad. That was fun. And then three weeks later, I went home to say, oh, and I lost my scholarship. I deserved reprimand. I deserved to pay the rest of my way through college. I received mercy. Mercy from my parents who love me anyway. And if you don't know me, my dad's a pastor. I received mercy from the church. They threw me a baby shower. And that son that was born preached on this stage five nights ago. What would be different if the church had rejected me in my life, in my family's life, my older kids, my daughter too, serves the Lord. What would have happened in, in the legacy to come had they just said, social outcast, mercies for the weak. It feels good to receive mercy. It feels good to offer mercy. It's a blessing. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And we live in a world where showing mercy on those in distress is a virtue, but on an enemy or an opponent is a vice and a sign of weakness. But Jesus does not separate the two. He says, blessed are the merciful, period. But let's not romanticize being merciful because offering and receiving mercy creates a dilemma. You see, offering mercy to the social outcast may bring peace in a moment, but it doesn't fix society's acceptance of them. And offering mercy to the broken may warm their heart for a moment, but it does not resolve the system or the problem that they have. And offering mercy to your enemy who has hurt you doesn't remove the offense or the pain. It doesn't absolve the scar. Mercy itself doesn't fill the void entirely. 
But mercy is a currency in the kingdom of heaven. And later in Matthew's gospel, Jesus gives us a story to bring a little bit of clarity about how mercy actually works in the kingdom. So look, if you have a Bible, if it's not, it's gonna be on the screen, flip over to Matthew 18. The story comes after a conversation with Jesus and his disciples about how to restore a brother or sister within the church that is, that is caught in sin. And Jesus uses the story coming up to teach us a few things. And the first reality I believe Jesus wants us to see is the relationship between mercy and forgiveness in our relationships with one another. And so the first two verses here, starting in verse 21, we see an initial exchange between Jesus and Peter after he teaches about the restoration of a brother in sin. And here's where we pick it up in verse 21. Then Peter came and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Jesus correlates here mercy with forgiveness. He's pointing to how forgiveness and compassion shown towards one another in his kingdom works actually towards restoration of relationships. And what type of forgiveness is necessary to bring restoration to relationships? Total and complete. When Peter says seven times, that, that number in Scripture, seven, is a number of completeness. Now, it's not like you're going to crack a code. I mean, we're not, it's not like that. But, but it is a metaphor in Scripture. The number seven is a metaphor for completeness and total. And so Peter probably, just knowing Peter, it's probably like, hey, seven times probably Jesus, right? Number of completeness. And Jesus is like, how about two sevens? totally complete, total forgiveness, total compassion, total offering and receiving of mercy between one another. But as we all know, if you've lived life very long at all, this can be messy. Forgiveness is messy. Compassion is hard. Offering mercy to someone who's wronged you might feel like driving the wrong direction up a one-way street. It just feels so unnatural to our hearts as we take in the air of the kingdom of this world. And knowing this, Jesus then launches into a story to help the disciples with an earshot and to help us visualize the correlation between forgiveness and mercy. Look what he says starting in verse 23. <clears throat> Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him his debt. A few things to notice in this first section of the story. Notice the relationship between the two parties. They are not equals. There is a king and there is a servant. And there's a need for mercy because what you don't realize, if I read from the ESV where it talks about 10,000 talents because that's what it was said back then. Some of the notes I read basically was like, this could be equal to up to like $6 billion, billion dollars. 
$6 billion. Just think about just the craziness that this servant is like, give me some time. How long would it take you to pay back $6 billion? This is an unpayable debt. And it shows just the complete lack of awareness of an unrealistic endeavor that this servant has in mind. Be patient with me. Well, how long is this going to take, brother? You owe me a lot. You could never pay it back. That's why you notice, like, it goes from he owed him 10,000 talents, and immediately he says, and since he could not pay. It's not even a question. Like, everybody within earshot in the first century would be like, oh, my gosh. He owes that much money? Of course he can't pay. So he grovels. Lord, just have patience with me, king. Just have patience. We don't sell me and my family. Just have patience. And the compassionate king doesn't give him a payment plan. Over the next 5,000 years, if you pay me, he forgives the debt. Says he has pity on him. But this creates a dilemma, right? Because the first dilemma of mercy is there's an injustice there. Someone has to absorb the debt. The king is still out all that money. He's in the red big time in this exchange. You see, mercy and forgiveness are not cheap. They are not free. They are costly. Someone's got to bear the cost. When you show mercy to someone else, especially an offender, you are absorbing the debt instead of demanding retribution. You're absorbing the pain instead of exacting revenge. Instead of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, it's an eye for a hug and a tooth for a slightly jankier smile. Let's keep going. Picking back up in verse 28. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw that he had, what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. Now we have a stunning turn of events in the story that Jesus tells. The forgiven servant shows no mercy to someone owing him what amounts to a few thousand dollars. The servant who owes what is an understandable request, right? I mean, he's just like, I could pay it back. I just can't pay it all now. He says, pay me what you owe. And he's like, well, I can't pay it all now, but if, if you be patient with me, I can get it paid back. It just can't be in full at the moment. But the servant who was forgiven is relentless, unforgiving, and merciless. And Jesus is wanting us to see that this exposes a problem in the heart of the servant. His fellow servants are stunned. They're stunned. You see, there is a public nature here to this lack of mercy. They see themselves, because they, they heard what happened with them previously with the master, they, they see the incongruity of his lack of mercy that he would offer someone else. 
and then compare it to the unparalleled mercy he'd already received. And Jesus says these fellow servants were greatly distressed. They weren't just like, wow, they were broken over it. They were distressed. Who acts like this who's received such mercy? And the king is not having it either. He summons the servant back, throws him into jail until he can pay his unpayable debt due to, to the lack of his reciprocity of mercy, which leads to the second dilemma we have with mercy, and that's a faulty flow of mercy. When you receive mercy, but you don't offer it back. You see, Jesus was exposing the flow. The king's mercy didn't flow through the servant to others in his dealings like it should have. Jesus sets up for us, you see, that there is an intended flow to mercy. The flow of mercy is downward and then horizontal. It's downward and then horizontal. We offer mercy because we have received mercy. But the flow gets faulty. When the reservoir of mercy from God is deep and wide and it's ready to receive, but the outspout for your mercy to flow from you is this little drip. Like the faucets when it gets really, really cold, when we're worried about a deep freeze, you got a little drip of mercy. Why? Because your heart is in a deep freeze. And mercy can at best seep out one drop at a time. And Jesus says this faulty flow of mercy in your life and in my life is problematic. Because a lack of capacity for forgiveness, for compassion and mercy is a diagnostic test that there's a deeper issue that we need to address. And Jesus addresses it in the last line of the story, verse 35. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. From your heart. See, the last dilemma created by mercy is that mercy's not a head thing. It's a heart thing. We're to offer forgiveness from our hearts. It's one thing to offer mercy on the outside to say you forgive but still keep the score in your heart, to welcome the social outcast while still judging them in your heart. So how on earth can we actually be merciful and not just outwardly offer mercy? Well, we need to be able to forgive from the heart, but how can we do that? We need a spiritual echocardiogram which is a cardiologist test to determine how your heart is beating and how blood is flowing through it. I learned this through WebMD. We need a diagnostic test of our heart and what it looks like to be apart from mercy. And luckily for us, Paul can't wait to give us an echocardiogram through Ephesians chapter 2 starting in verse one. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, 
following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. It's pretty dire. It's a realistic picture of a heart that's bent in on itself. See, we were spiritual zombies, the walking dead. And the rhythm of our heart was set by the prince of this world. And we're walking and following the kingdom of this world and our very nature was under God's wrath. You see, this is a stark, dark reality of the depth of my and your need for mercy. What is our definitions again? Compassion and forbearance for an offender. We were offenders. Compassion for someone in distress. You want a picture of distress? And we don't want to get what we deserve. And as bad as this heart exam is, the truth of where we have come from is necessary to understand mercy. Picking back up in verse three, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind, but God. Let that sink in. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Our hearts are transformed by the God of mercy. And he makes us alive He's not looking to make bad people good people. He's making to look dead people alive. And when we're captivated by the depths of this mercy that we all need, and if you're in Christ, you have received, that's what can soften the hardest hearts, stir forgiveness in the most unforgiving, and melt away the calloused heart into one that is compassionate and loving. You see, The dilemma of of forgiving from our heart finds the beginning of a lifelong resolution through the gospel as we have a heart transplant that has received mercy and therefore we can offer it to others. The dilemma of injustice that we have an unpayable debt finds the beginning of a lifelong resolution that we can begin to believe and repeat because in Jesus we have a savior who absorbed the payment of our sins and our debt that we created once and for all on the cross. And the the dilemma of the faulty flow of mercy, our mercilessness finds the beginning of a lifelong resolution because in Jesus, we are passively, passively, 
made alive by grace alone. If we receive mercy freely, we offer mercy freely. We can never outdispense God when it comes to mercy. And we will never give out so much mercy horizontally to then find that the vertical downward tap is running empty. Blessed are the merciful. Yes, there's pain. Yes, there's injustice. But in this broken world, those are always going to be with us. The ones who are blessed are not the ones who avoid pain, but the ones who avoid bitterness and judgment and offer mercy from the heart instead. And we offer mercy from a transformed heart that we receive from God in a moment in the gospel, but we maintain the heart in our life by keeping our eyes on the man of mercy himself, Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus is the hero of the Beatitudes. He's the hero of the Beatitudes. He's transforming us into a blessed people through the Beatitudes, and he may not be doing it as quickly as you or I would like him to, but he is actually slowly and surely transforming us into the people of the Beatitudes like himself. You see, he's the hero, the poor in spirit. No, he's not spiritually impoverished, but he lowered himself and came, took on flesh and came to earth as a servant. He was led by the spirit. And he mourned over the brokenness in our world. He mourned over the brokenness that he saw. He was meek. He was gentle and lowly in heart. And he, he was so hungry and thirsty for righteousness on earth that he brought the kingdom of heaven to earth himself. And he was merciful and compassionate. The social outcast, the sinner, oh yeah, woman at the well, had to draw water at an inopportune time of day because she was outcast by the city. Jesus says, let me give you living water. Woman caught in adultery. Jesus says, where are your accusers? Go and sin no more. You see, he was merciful to the social outcast. He was merciful to the broken and marginalized, right? He healed people with diseases, people that couldn't even enter the temple. They had to walk around the city going, unclean, unclean, unclean. Jesus says, I'll make you clean. He heals the lame. He casts out demons. He's merciful to the broken and he's merciful to the oppressor. Zacchaeus, I'm gonna eat with you today, buddy. You wee little man. Roman Centurion whose daughter is sick, Jesus heals a Roman centurion's daughter. And who are we reading this gospel from? Matthew, a tax collector. He's so merciful. How many of these types of people you invite into your journey group? You got a demon? Come on, let's go. Is that leprosy on your arm? Bring it. Right? Like these are the people that were like, ooh, I don't know. I mean, like journey group's messy, but that's beyond messy. And Jesus says, come to me. I'll show you mercy. Blessed are the merciful because we can be a conduit of the mercy we have experienced from the man of mercy, Jesus Christ. 
and we are transformed by him. I've said this on repeat. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says that we are transformed from one degree to another by beholding the glory of Jesus Christ. And when you behold the man of mercy, you will have your heart transformed so you can actually offer mercy and forgiveness from your heart. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Amen. So as we close today as a call to action, if you're not a follower of Jesus, then I think it's pretty clear. If you would just say like, I, I feel dead inside. I feel dead spiritually. I feel like I just can't relate to God, that I would encourage you to move from being spiritually dead to alive today through faith in Jesus Christ. It's a gift. It's not something you earn. You don't, don't come out of here and go like, okay, I wanna, be, I wanna follow Jesus, so I gotta, I gotta get his mercy, therefore I gotta be merciful. You don't earn mercy. We're transformed by his mercy. Would you be transformed by his mercy today if you are not following Jesus? And then you can experience the deepest mercy you've ever experienced, both horizontally and downward from above. And if you are a disciple of Jesus today, then I would just encourage you to consider the flow of mercy in your life. Because our, our capacity to offer mercy reveals the depth to which we understand we've been given mercy. Consider the flow of mercy in your life. Number two, offer mercy to your enemies and trust Jesus with the justice part. That's tough. Because we have real hurt. We have real scars. And Jesus doesn't diminish that. He just says, trust me with that and love your enemy. And finally, be transformed by beholding Jesus, the man of mercy. It's the only way it's gonna work. In this kingdom which we live on this earth, and it's the only way we're ever gonna be people of mercy in the counter kingdom of heaven is to behold Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father, we are in this room today, we are people that, man, we love these ideas, but they're just really hard for us to implement sometimes. And so I just wanna first just thank you for not setting these beatitudes out before us as though they are some litmus test to get in your kingdom. Thank you instead, Father, that you say that I'm blessing you, I'm gracing you with these qualities. I'm stirring these up in you, I'm making you this way, God. Would you help us to rest in that reality today? Because I know for most of us in this room, this is a tough one. We wanna be merciful. 
We want to be like you because we're captivated by you. Help us, Lord. Soften our hard hearts. Scrape the calluses off that have been worn in by rough treatment in our world. Break our hearts for the things that break your heart and then move us into action. Make us hungry, make us thirsty, make us merciful. Only you can do it, but we know that it's a promise that you will because these are the blessings of your kingdom and these are who and what you are blessing in us. And so we thank you, Jesus. Would you stir us up today to good works, to encourage one another for the glory of your name in Jonesboro and beyond because you are worthy in Jesus' name, amen.